You will be finding 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to visit 2 Samuel chapter 11 here in just a couple of moments. Uh, before we get there, we want to set forth some preliminary observations. I think it is safe to say that uh, we are all familiar and uh, recognize the universal law of sowing and reaping. And we certainly understand this in the physical and natural realm of life, which simply says that whatever you sow is what you will reap. So if you plant a watermelon seed, what will you get? Corn? No, you're going to get watermelon. Oftentimes we fail to appreciate this universal law of sowing and reaping in the spiritual and moral realm of life. The Apostle Paul would put it like this in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. He said, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Now listen to this. For he who sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap everlasting life. This Universal law of sowing and reaping is also seen in a number of Old Testament passages, such as Proverbs chapter 22, verse 8, where the Bible says, He who sows iniquity will reap sorrow. And I like what the prophet Hosea said in Hosea chapter 10, verse 13, the prophet of God said to the nation of Israel, you have plowed wickedness. That's just another way of saying you have sown wickedness. Now listen to him. You have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way. Here is something very important we need to understand about the law of sowing and reaping. It not only says that you will reap what you have sown, but it says the reaping is always greater than the sowing. And so when you plant that watermelon seed, what are you hoping to reap? Will you get just one watermelon? Well, all things being equal, on that one watermelon vine, you might have several watermelons that contain, each of them contains hundreds of seeds. Did you know that is likewise true in the spiritual and moral realm of life? The reaping can very often be greater than the sowing. 
And uh, we see this reflected in the lives of so many people today. One moment of pleasure. And you might have to suffer a lifetime of consequences. I tell you this, the universal law of sowing and reaping is perhaps nowhere better manifested in the Scriptures than in the life of David. Now, it's certainly seen in other Bible characters. But the choices that David made illustrate for us very vividly the great power of sin. And so I invited your attention to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to read about some choices that David made, and I'm sure that all of us are familiar with this account. Now, most of us just know he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah murdered. There are some other details about that that we also need to appreciate. And so what we're going to do, we're just going to read through this chapter. 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. Let's notice what the inspired Word of God says. It says, It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened, verse 2 says, one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba? the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David uh, sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. For she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. So a clear case of adultery. But it doesn't end there. Verse 5 says the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Uh-oh, David, what are you going to do now? You didn't anticipate this, did you? One moment of pleasure is beginning to unfold the consequences right before David's very eyes. David comes up with a plan. So he sent to Joab, verse 6 says, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. 
When Uriah had come to him, David asked Joab how, uh, how Joab was doing and, and how the people were doing and, and how the war prospered. And so, you know, they're just having a nice friendly conversation here about life and about the war. How are your fellow soldiers doing? How is the war going? Tell me about things out on the battlefield. And then David said to Uriah there in verse 8, You go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. Well, David is uh, really buttering up Uriah. Uriah, I so appreciate you. I'm not going to send you back out onto the battlefield. You just go on to your house, take a bath, and here's some good food. David had uh, ulterior motive, didn't he? Now, we can read between the lines as to why he wanted Uriah to go back home. And actually, Uriah mentions that later on in this context. But let's just go on in the context here and, and see what it further says. Verse 9 begins with the word, but. Uh-oh. That big but just gets in the way, and it's getting in the way of David's plan. But Uriah, now listen to this, he slept at the door of the king's house, with all the servants of his Lord, and did not go down to his house. Well, there's already a great big kink in David's scheme, is there not? It's not going to plan, or according to plan. So when they told David, verse 10 says, when they told David about this, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Now, I want you to listen to Uriah's response. This is an amazing response, and it shows you how honorable of a man Uriah was. Uriah said to David, The ark, that is the ark of the covenant, and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my Lord, uh, Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. I mean, here are my brethren. I mean, they're out there on the battlefield in the open field, they're sleeping in, in these probably nasty tents, all scummy and dirty. You know, I mean, you've you got to give it to Uriah. He's an honorable man. I'm not going to go do, the, do this. I'm one of them. Well, we've got a real problem. Well, what is David going to do next? You know, David has had every opportunity to make things right, to come clean, confess his sins, repent of his sins. But no, he keeps digging the hole deeper and deeper and deeper. And so let's just take a look at what David does next. David said to Uriah, 
Wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord. But, now listen, he did not do what? Go down to his house. Getting him drunk didn't even do the trick. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. So David writes this letter. Uriah does not uh, know the contents of that letter. But he was to give it to Joab. And so he wrote in the letter saying, here's what this letter says. Set Uriah in the forefront of the, New King James says, the hottest battle. I have a footnote in my Bible that says on this word hottest, fiercest. But that's not all. Listen to what else this letter says. And retreat from him. Pull back from him. Get away from him. So you put him in the hottest, fiercest battle, and then you draw back. That's about as low down as you can get. Why? That he may be struck down and die. So it was, verse 16, so it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell. Now here it is. And Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war, and charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises, and says to you, Why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerebosheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of a millstone on him from the wall, so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Verse 22, So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Now listen to David's incredible calloused response. Verse 25, David said to the messenger, Thus you, you shall say to Joab, 
do not let this thing displease you. For the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. What was David saying? You know, that's just a part of war. Uriah was at the wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, it could happen to anybody. That's the risk you take when you go to war. That's David's response, essentially. Wrong place, wrong time. The sword devours one as well as another. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she, as Bathsheba, mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. I have a footnote in my Bible on this word displeased that it means was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, you think about what all David did. He lusted after a woman. It didn't end right there. And so he went from mental adultery to physical adultery. And then he went to lying to Uriah and deceiving Uriah and then getting him drunk and then committing murder. What a story. The story continues in the chapter 12. Verse 1 says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men. Now I want you to listen to this story that Nathan tells David. It is powerful. There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. Verse 4 says, And a traveler came to the rich man, who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took, now listen, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now here's David listening to this story. And look at David's response here in verse 5. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. 
And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing shall surely die. And he said this in verse 6, And he shall restore. How many times? Four. Fourfold the lamb. Because he did this thing and because he had no pity. One of the most powerful statements comes next. In all of the Bible, verse 7, Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Now I love the old King James English in this instance where it says, Thou art the man. Like a two by four upside your head. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. What was God saying through Nathan to David? God was saying, I, I have blessed you immensely. I have given you everything. The entire kingdom of Israel and Judah to be king over. You had everything, David. I gave you everything. But he says in verse 9, Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. You know what David or God says to David? You, you, you murdered Uriah. It's not just a, a matter of going to war and being at the wrong place at the wrong time as you surmise. Your actions led to his murder, to his killing. Verse 10, mark this. Now therefore... In other words, because David has done these things, therefore uh, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you and your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and, and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. And then verse 13. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Oh, that's something we've got to remember every day. And the choices that we make are being observed by an unbelieving world. What do they see? Do we do things that would cause them to blaspheme? 
the body of Christ, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. And then Nathan departed to his, to his house. All right, now just get these and just file these things away. Write them down if you're accustomed to taking notes. You go back to verse 10 uh, here of chapter 12. And what did God say through Nathan to David? The sword shall never depart from your house. That was part of the reaping that David would experience because of what he had sown. You look there at verses 11 and 12 once again. David's own wives would be taken from him publicly. But I just want you to notice something here in verse 10 that is said, that, that God said to David. You have despised me. You, David, have despised me, God. Now, now wait just a minute. How, how did David sin against God? Well, we certainly know that he sinned against uh, Bathsheba. And uh, we know that he sinned against Uriah. He sinned against himself. And really, if you want to keep on drawing it out, he sinned against all Israel. But God said, you have despised me. Listen to me, folks. All sin, I don't care what sin it is, all sin against others is still sin against God. Beginning in verse 15 of uh, this chapter, chapter 12, the aftermath of David's sins begins to unfold. Now, go back to verse 6 once again of chapter 12. What did David say about that situation with the rich man and the lamb? He shall restore fourfold. David didn't realize it at the time, but in a very real prophetic way, he had just pronounced the consequences that would come upon his own house because it was four deaths that came to David's house as a consequence of his sinful choices and his sinful actions. Here's something we need to understand, especially those who may be new Christians. There is a difference in, a huge difference as a matter of fact, between forgiveness and consequences. I know from what else the Bible says about David, especially when we get over to Acts 13, I can't remember the exact verse, he's called a man after God's own heart. <laughs> I mean, you read something like this, and how in the world... Can he be called a man after God's own heart? That, that's just, it, it's hard for us to comprehend that, right? After all that he did. 
Did God forgive David? Without a doubt. Let me ask you this. Did he still have to suffer the consequences of his sins? I've heard people come up out of the baptistry, and you know, not long after that, and um, they had the misconception that all their problems and consequences and things were just going to go away. You take somebody who has lived a life of immorality, promiscuity, and they contract some terrible disease such as AIDS. They become a Christian. They're baptized into Christ. They are raised up out of that watery grave, a new creation in Christ Jesus. Does the AIDS go away? Mm -mm. Are they forgiven though? Yes. David's life, ladies and gentlemen, proves that while one can be forgiven of their sins, they still reap the consequences. And we tell young people this all the time. We try to impress upon our young people. But I tell you, a lot, a lot of our older people need to learn this lesson as well. You reap what you sow. Fourfold. Fourfold. Four deaths. Now, I want to give you these four things. We don't have the time to look at these. We'd be here a very long time. But I just want to give you these four things. If you need something to read and study, read and study these things. Number one, the baby that was born to David in Bathsheba died. We read that right here in chapter 12, verses 15 through 23. The baby died. Somebody says, Brother Ben, that's not fair that the baby died. What did the baby do? Well, from a purely human vantage point, we might see that as not being fair. Two things. If David had never committed adultery with Bathsheba, would she have ever conceived and bore that child? No. But here's the second thing. As horrible as it is to lose a little child, I mean, one thing that touches my heart is to see a little baby suffer. But if you step back and look at that situation through the eyes of God, and if that little child dies, as this one did of David's and Bathsheba's, because that child is so innocent and pure, do you know where that child soul will live forever? In the very presence of God. Hard to deal with? Yes, from a human vantage point. I mean, it just destroys us almost from a, from a human vantage point. But when we look at it from the eyes of God, God the great creator of human life, we can be reunited with that child in heaven. And the soul of that child 
in the very presence of God for all eternity. Second, David's son Amnon was killed by Absalom for having raped his sister Tamar. We find that in the very next chapter here in 2 Samuel chapter 13. Number three, David's son Absalom died in rebellion against David. David's own son rose up in rebellion against him. And David, I mean Absalom to David was his pride and joy. And I just encourage you to read chapter 18 of 2 Samuel, especially verse 13, where David held Absalom in his arms. Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, Absalom. Would I had died for you, O oh, Absalom, my son. Number four. David's son, Adonai, was killed way later over in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. It has been said that sin will take you farther than you want to go. And it will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. And, and I ask you this, you know, if, if David could somehow have looked down the stream of time, you know, into the future to see the horrific consequences of his actions, would he have ever done what he did? I would venture to say that would be highly unlikely. You know, um, folks, we, we don't have to look into the future to know the consequences of sin for two reasons. Number one is personal observation. Just look around you at people's lives. I mean, you can go up and down any street in any town in America and just go into people's homes and, and see how they're, they're living in sin and degradation and immorality and just look at the consequences that they are having to bear not only themselves but in the lives of their own children. Just look around you. The consequences of sin are everywhere. But the sad thing is, what do people still do? They still want to live that way. But reason number two is because of this book right here. God has laid out the consequences from Genesis to Revelation of sin. We just read about David, didn't we? We're going to learn from that. You know, the devil doesn't want to show you the consequences, does he? He doesn't want you to see those consequences. Either that, or he wants you to believe somehow the consequences will not be all that bad. Or he convinces us that the pleasure is worth the consequences. Somebody says, pleasure? What do you mean pleasure? Sin is pleasurable. If sin was not pleasurable, people wouldn't do it. Of course sin is pleasurable. 
Hebrews 11.25, what does it say? The pleasures of sin are for a season or a time. Because when the pleasure wears off and goes away, the pain and the heartache and the consequences and the reaping set in. I just want you to consider the tragic consequences of a young Christian man. He allowed himself to be influenced by his peers to drink with them. And uh, he was having a great time drinking and partying, and he became intoxicated. And he decided to get in his two-ton automobile and drive home. But yet on his way home, he hit another car head-on, killing the other driver. That actually happened out here on Interstate 44 a few months ago. The same thing. But this young Christian, he was paralyzed and confined to a wheelchair for life and spent a few years in prison. Oh yes, he, he, he repented of his sin. And if his repentance was sincere and biblical, he was forgiven by God. But I tell you this, folks, the horror of that night was never forgotten. He had to live with the knowledge that his sin killed another man. And his wheelchair that he was confined to was a constant reminder of the power of sin. And I tell you what, that man's wife, he left behind, and their young child never knew their father's love. But they knew something. They knew the pain caused by one young man's sin. And no matter how badly everyone involved in that tragedy might wish to change it, to undo what had been done, you see, folks, it cannot ever be changed. It cannot ever be undone. Sin costs dearly. And the devil only wants you to see the pleasure in the good time. Sin is like a credit card, you know. You enjoy now, you pay later. <laughs> That's the way it goes, isn't it? I want you to listen to what I'm going to say, especially you young people. You are free to make whatever choices you want in life. You have volition. You have free will. And so you can make, you can make whatever choices you want in life either good or bad, right or wrong, morally immoral. And so while you are free to make whatever choices you want, you are never free from the consequences of those choices. And uh, David's consequences was a constant reminder of the sins he committed. David penned many of the Psalms, as you are aware. 
there are several of those psalms that we call the penitential psalms of David. Where David seeks out God's forgiveness for his sins. The most well-known penitential psalm is Psalm 51. And we see there David's prayer for cleansing, where he just, I mean, he pours out his heart to God. You, you ought to read that chapter and study it. Psalm 51. But here, here's what David said in Psalm 51 in verse 3, verse that was read earlier. He said, I, I acknowledge my transgressions, but listen to what he says next, and my sin is always before me. Always before me. Why does God warn us so much about sin? Why does He do that? I mean, it, does He not want us to enjoy life? Or, you know, some people say, you know, you're God, He just takes away all your fun. I mean, from Genesis to Revelation, we have do's and don'ts, don't we? A lot of people ridicule those do's and don'ts. Those do's and don'ts are very important. They are essential. Why did God give those do's and don'ts? Because He loves us, and He does not want us hurt by what sin can do. Do we understand that? Whatever sins I have committed, here, here's the good news. There's something more powerful than sin. As, as powerful as sin is, there's something more powerful. And although I may have to deal with a lifetime of consequences, I, here's the good news, I can be forgiven. I can be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. I can have the hope of heaven. Again, going back to Psalm 51, verse 2. Listen to what David said here. Psalm 51, verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Another penitential psalm of David is Psalm 32. And here is what David said there in verse number 1. Psalm 32, verse 1. David said, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. You see, David tried to cover his sin in the wrong way. And it cost him dearly. You try to do that with your, with your sin, and it's going to cost you. We are certainly aware of the fact that sometimes people escape the consequences of their sinful behavior, and we look at that, that uh, situation and we say, why, why are these people prospering so much and they live in so much sin? We fail to remember that there's an ultimate consequence coming. No one will escape. There's a judgment day coming. And those who have lived in sin and lived in wickedness and ungodliness, 
cannot go to heaven. Eternal, the eternal ruin of their soul is what is in store for them. But you hear me well, dear brethren, there is no sin that is beyond the reach of the blood of Christ. Somebody says, preacher, you know, you just don't know what I've done. I'm telling you I've done things so horrible. I, I, God cannot forgive me. There are people who think like that. You may think like that. I'm going to tell you what, if David can be forgiven, so can you. If those people who murdered the innocent Lamb of God can be forgiven, so can you. You see, the devil wants you to believe you cannot be forgiven. But there is no sin that is beyond the reach of the blood of Jesus Christ. But I, I hope and, and pray and trust that we appreciate from the account of David the, the great power the great power of sin, the consequences of sin. If you have sin in your life that you have not repented of and that you have not confessed, my friend, you cannot stand before the judgment bar of God in that condition. You cannot stand approved before Him in an unforgiven state. Are you willing to humble yourself here today, as David eventually did, thanks be to God? He did make things right. And so that he was later called a man after God's own heart. Can that be said of you? A man after God's own heart. If you continue to stay in your sin, you're not a man after God's own heart. You're following Satan. But you have this opportunity here this afternoon to repent of your sins. If you need to come forward in a public way, we will pray with you. We will pray for you because we love you. And we want to encourage and help you get to heaven. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, you're not yet a child of God, and you want to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, you can do that today. Based upon your belief in Jesus as God's Son, your willingness to repent of your sins, that is, change your mind about the way you're going to live in this life. And when you truly change your mind, that will result in a change of life. It is a 180-degree turn. It's going from this to this. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to confess Jesus with your mouth that He is indeed the Son of God? If you do those things, as the Bible teaches, the Lord will add you to His church, Acts 2.47. Maybe you are uncertain about these things. Maybe you're confused about these things and you want to study some more. We would be happy and delighted to sit down with you and open up the Word of God and study it and see what it says. If your life is not right with God, why not take this opportunity right now to make it right? As together we stand and as we sing.